0: In a letter of recommendation to the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, the credentialing body of the Unitarian Universalist Association that determines if a seminarian is ready to be ordained, a colleague described me as having the mind of a scholar and the heart of a mystic. And as if the universe wanted to remind me constantly not to stray from either my mind's or my heart's path, The church is across from Harvard University, and on my way to and back from church, I drive on the Mystic Parkway, past the Mystic River and the Lower Mystic Lake. So here I am, preaching again on mysticism, one of my favorite subjects, trying to debunk some of the misconceptions attached to this word, and encouraging those of you, and I know there are many around here, who identified as mystics, to be less afraid of the stigma attached to that word. I also want to invite the mystics here to become members of the Unitarian Universalist Mystics in Community, and if there is interest, to start meeting regularly here at First Parish. Did you know that there is such an organization called Unitarian Universalist Mystics in Community? Did you know about that? Ah, now you're going to know. The Yuju Mystics and Community was co created several years ago by the Reverend Alex Crane, a very notorious theologian of ours, and and David Gonzi, a banker, bankers can be mystics too, and brother of our very own member, Richard Gonzi. Feeling sort of spiritually, theologically isolated and in need of spiritual support. Alex and David wanted to create a community of Unitarian Universalists who shared their interest in mysticism in order to gain the rewards of mutual support and spiritual stimulation. They wanted to have a way to provide inspiration and community to Unitarian Universalists in the quest for the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder Affirm in all cultures, which move us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. Do you remember this passage? It's our first source of spiritual sustenance. They also wanted to encourage personal witness and service, reflecting the wellspring of connection and compassion, which opens in us through the mystical life. This is so important. This is something that I have always known, you know, without spiritual sustenance, without a core social justice is not all that it could be. But now, after the General Assembly, I am much, much more convinced that this is so, and you will see why. This year, this year, At a General Assembly, uh, the UU mystics and community always have a booth. And many, many people pass by, and I always get amused by their reaction sometimes. So this year, a visitor asked me in amazement, Unitarian Universalist mystics? We have a beautiful banner there, too. And he said, Unitarian Universalist mystics? In the middle of all these rational and intellectual Unitarian Universalist people? How can it be? I thought mystics were people disconnected from reality, living in monasteries and caves. Another misconception is that mysticism is the science of the occult and of the esoteric. A woman told me at the booth, in our church, we have a medium. And I said, a what? She said, a medium. This woman said that she can talk with the dead. Then, after some clarification of what a mystic is, she asked, if she's not a mystic, then what is she? And I hate to say this, but her boyfriend said, she might be crazy. I don't think that people to talk to mediums and do all of that things are crazy, but this is what he said. So people confuse mystics with esoteric, with the occult, with talking to the dead. Some people that do that can be mystics, and in reality, they are mystics, but Not all mystics do that, this is not what defined us. It might surprise you, as it surprised people at the booth, that a main feature of the mystics is that they are communal, feeling at home with others, with animals and nature, and of course feeling very much at home in the entire universe. There is misunderstanding regarding the mystical language even among ministers. During our retreat, this very well-liked and respected minister was asked to share the highlights of her ministry with the other ministers attending. I was utterly confused when she ended her moving account by inviting us to rebel against anyone imposing language of reverence in our worship. I asked her how she could be so against reverential language after she had used such beautiful mystical and spiritual language, reverent, to describe her experiences in nature and in her ministerial work. She was sort of baffled by my question. And so after reflecting for a moment, she answered that what she really was against was using Christian language, which is very, very different, right? We confuse Christian with mystic and that's not. To be a mystic, you don't have to be a Christian. There are mystics in every faith tradition and among those without specific faith. In Practical Mysticism, a classic gem on the subject, Evelyn Underhill says, Mysticism is the art of union with reality. And she writes reality with capital R, reality. That's what really is. The mystic is a person, she continues, who has attained that union in greater or lesser degree, or who aims at and believes in such attainment. So just by desiring to be in more union with reality, with capital R, you start being a mystic. The essence of mysticism, of course, is the union, searching, believing that that union is possible. And what a path mysticism? By being realistic and attuned to the moment, mystics are able to extract meaning of tragedy and everything life offers them. Their keen sense of humor help mystics to make sense and enjoy the awesome pranks and jokes reality throws at them. Sometimes you, you just can't help but think this is really a prank from the universe. This is something that is so funny, so unreal, that there is no other way to go through it but to laugh. Now, how can one become a mystic? I suggest, and many books that I have read and authors suggest, that, of course, you become a mystic, start being one by being open to the spirit of life, by living a life of love, a life of compassion, and by seeking union with the mystery, with capital M, and by inviting it to dwell in us. There are two main impediments to the union with reality, reality, if for reality we understand as our ultimate concern or the sacred and the mystery, with capital M again. One of those impediments is the hubris that blinds us to the recognition that there is more, much more, and much larger and unimaginable than that which passes for reality. And the other big impediment is the lack of spiritual courage, which deters us from entering a path of discipline, love, and surrender. People get very scared to surrender to the infinite, surrender to the mystery, surrender to that universal love, because they think they are going to lose their souls and lose control of their lives. And there is nothing further from the truth than that. The moment you surrender, you become free, which is a paradox again. One of the fruits of mysticism is enlightenment, that that pivotal moment when one clearly realizes that we are all one, inseparable from all that exists. After feeling part of this seamless, indescribable universe, It is very difficult to feel alone, or fearful, or forgotten. Once we find our place among this amazing family of things, the feelings of protection by a loving, interconnected web of all existence leads to the proverbial peace that passes understanding. The main characteristic of enlightenment is that it happens in a flash, and being grace, it comes unbidden. This is how Alice Walker did his famous description of her enlightenment in *The Color Purple*. Some of you might remember this because this has been cited over and over and over as a classic. What happens when you get enlightenment? She says, "I believe God is everything. Everything that is, or ever will be. And when you can feel that and be happy to feel that." You had found it. My first step from the old white man was trees. Then air, then birds, then other people. But one day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a mothers modest, mothers child which I was, it came to me that feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree. My arm will bleed, and I laughed, and I cried, and I ran all around the house. I knew just what it was. In fact, when it happens, you cannot miss it. Being in Louisville, or Louisville, or whatever pronunciation you want to give it, uh, the mystics in community enjoyed having a moment of communion every day at 3 o'clock, uh, every day of the GA with Thomas Merton right at the site where he had his enlightenment. Let us listen how he described that moment in his conjectures of a guilty bystander. In Louisville at the corner of Fort and Walnut in the center of the shopping district I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I love all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation into a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I had the immense joy of being a man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize that we, uh, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained, there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. The exciting description of Merton's enlightenment is extremely important for us Unitarian Universalists for two reasons. One, we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person And Merton helped us understand that although it cannot be explained and that although there is no way of telling people, we are all walking around shining like the sun. As he exclaims, if only everybody could realize this. What immense joy that of realizing that you, each one of you, I, all of us, are meant to be human beings. What a gift. But that gift demands that we honor it by being grateful to the giver and by letting grace and love shine in us like the sun. With the gift, we acquire the responsibility of not letting this sun be opaque and obscured by the many petty, selfish things with which we let our precious lives be miserable and, at times, worthless of our humanness. This little light of mine, I am going to let it shine. The city of Louisville has since renamed the the four-way intersection he was standing at when he had his revelation. He has named Thomas Merton Square. There stands a double-sided bronze plaque with one side telling his biography and the other side called A Revelation. For us Unitarian Universalists, and in particular for us here at First Parish, where social justice seems to be our overriding mission, the revelation contains the second and most crucial aspect of Merton's enlightenment. The plaque reads Merton had a sudden insight at this corner, March 18, 1958 that led him to redefine his monastic identity with greater involvement in social justice issues. Remember, he was a monk in silence, but from the moment he had that amazing revelation, he decided that monastic life was okay, but it wasn't complete if he didn't engage in social issues. And why I'm so excited about this? Our congregations have in their midst people in different stages of a spiritual and activist development. Some even think that these two paths are parallel, if not divergent from each other. But if Merton, the mystic monk, could involve himself in social justice, nothing prevent us, the social justice activists, from inviting the spirit to be with us in the struggle. William Hough, in his chapter titled The Spiritual Basis for Social Action, contained in his popular book Infinite, Infinite, Infinity in Your Hand, I'm sorry, endeavors precisely to debunk the myth that political activism and mysticism, social change, and spirituality have little in common and are even perhaps antagonistic. He says... In the strongest terms possible, I will assert that social activism and mysticism are inextricably interwoven, and that where they are not, the results are flawed and crippled. Since the beginning of recorded history, the most interesting and effective transformers of society were and are people in whom activism and mysticism were inextricably interwoven. You might remember many of them. As Hoff continues, I am reminded of Martin Luther King Jr.'s warning. Any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of people, and it is not concerned with the slums that damn them and the social conditions that cripple them is as dry as dust religion. Mahama Gandhi said very much the same thing. "I cannot imagine better worship of God than that in his name than that in his name I should labor for the poor." And Thomas Merton, which has mentioned the Cistercian monk, wrote, "It is only in assuming full responsibility for our world, for our lives and for ourselves, that we can be said to live really for God." Our own faith produced the transcendentalist Henry David Thoreau, who with his teachings on civil disobedience influenced Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Jr., Nelson Mandela, and countless other pacifists and activists. Our faith also produced Theodore Parker, whose eloquent preaching and unction attracted thousands on Sundays, and who was fierce advocate for women's rights and that was against the slavery. And let us not forget Olympia Brown, the first first woman ordained by the Universalist, who was a powerful preacher and a suffragist. In our lifetime, we had examples of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Nelson Mandela again, Monsignor Oscar Romero, and so many others who I imagine are coming to your consciousness as I speak. Hough gives this timely warning. Let us make no mistake about it. Just as there is the danger that a timid church will fall into irrelevance or worse when it ignores the social and political plights of the people, so there is the complementary peril for religious institutions that focus their full attention on this world to the neglect of the spiritual or mystical realm. What happened to our denomination between the 50s and the 70s serves to illustrate the point that Hough makes. We became consumed by the Vietnam War, racial injustice, and even advocating for legalizing marijuana. In the absence of a solid spiritual core, we became fatigued and discouraged, and our members dwindled badly. The numbers of of members dwindled badly. Fortunately, after much soul searching, we started paying attention to feminist theology, opened wide the doors of seminaries to women, and invited pagans and members of other earth-centered religions to revitalize our worship with poetry, with song, and dance. And we also rewrote our principles and purpose. Here at First Parish, we are creating a multicultural, spiritual-fit community that works for justice, fosters spiritual curiosity and faith formation, shares joy, kills brokenness, and celebrates the sacred in all. May we all be united in the struggle for what is just and true. And may the warm, bright sunlight of the holy irradiate from our hearts' centers, bringing to all love, joy, and peace. Amen, and blessed be. So as I do sometimes, I would invite those of you who would like to share any spiritual experience or maybe a moment of mysticism or enlightenment, and Marie-Cris will be ready to assist you with a microphone. I could um, share mine, one of my moments, perhaps the most important. I was just, not just, but quite new into Unitarian Universalism. And um, at that time, as you know, you have heard me so many times from the pulpit, saying I was in this dry period of spiritual life, not believing in anything, and very angry. But here I was, in one of the services, and the minister, Robert Layton, after preaching, ask us to hold hands, stand up and hold hands, and chant the OM sound. And that was very strange to me. The OM, I had never heard of that. I thought it was sort of wacko. And but I said, you know, hey, do it. You don't understand anything to lose. This is a safe place. Nobody is looking at you. And if you want to laugh, laugh inside, but don't, you know, don't show too much consternation. So I held hands like anybody else, and then we started And after repeating several times, I just felt like I melted, like I disappeared in this bubble of, I don't know what, totally, I, I didn't feel my body, I didn't feel myself breathing, anything. And being in that state of, I don't know, union, let's say, a voice very clearly said inside me, for this moment was where to have been born. And then when the OM ended and I opened my eyes, I said, what happened to me? This is very strange. But like I said in the sermon, after that there came this amazing peace, this immense security that yes, I was one with everything. That what so many people had said before in song and in poetry and in mystical readings that I had had, you know, Yes, when we realize, when that moment comes to us, that moment of grace that makes us feel like Alice uh, Walker felt, and like so many, and Merton at that corner felt different. We are one with each other and with everything. So that was my moment. And God forbid, it happened among Unitarian Universalists. So anybody wants to share something? Come on. What did you
1: Good morning. So, the summer of 2001, I was traveling to Italy with a choir. We had spent six months preparing spirituals and Latin. Uh, pieces of music to take to the Italian nation and to sing for them. And in one particular concert outside of Rome, we sang a piece called "Lux Arunque, and it was about the soul's ascension into heaven. And it was a piece that I always held close to my heart. Um, but on that particular night, there were two women in our, in our audience and one was just sobbing absolutely sobbing and the woman next to her was was you know rubbing her back and whispering you know encouraging things to her and When the concert was over they came up to us um, me and several of my friends and just Kept speaking in so much Italian. I couldn't keep up (laughs) Um, But we got a translator there and what she had said was that the woman who was crying uh, Her husband had passed away a month prior she had not left the house since her sister was the woman with her. She had convinced her to come and hear the music. It would be a good reason to come out. And before the concert started, the woman had prayed for a sign that her husband was safe, that everything was okay, and that she was okay to move on. And hearing us sing a piece about the soul's ascension into heaven was the sign she had asked for. And so she kissed my, my face and, and said, grazie, grazie, over and over again. And in that moment, I realized I was exactly where I was supposed to be, doing exactly what I was supposed to do. And who knew that six months prior, we were putting the ball in motion to answer this woman's prayer. So that Thank was you. my... Experience. Thank
0: you. Somebody else?
2: Hi, can you hear me?
0: Okay.
2: Um, so I. I had an amazing experience back a few years ago, I can't remember exactly how long, but um, David was with me, I think, at the, it was uh, we were at BU, and it was part of the Portuguese festival. I worked for a, an agency, a human service agency that serves Portuguese speakers. And part of the festival was a uh, showing of a documentary about the, the life and the work of I'm going to try to remember the name exactly. I think it's Aristide de Souza Mendez. And um, his great gift was he was a diplomat in France during the occupation of France in the World War II. And, um, and he had the... He thought all night, many nights, about what was going on and about the, the Jews being rounded up and other uh, groups of quote-unquote undesirables by the Nazis. And he had decided that he was going to give visas to all these people who he wasn't supposed to give visas to according to his government in Portugal. And he just started doing it and everybody in the embassy started doing it. Well, they got wind of it down in, um, in Portugal and told him to stop, but he didn't stop. He, they, they moved to another area of France and they went on and on over, I forget if it was two or three days, nonstop, 24 hours, giving visas and getting these people safely through to Spain. Some of them ended up sadly coming back, but I think hundreds and hundreds of people were saved thousands. Thank you, David. And I just was feeling so moved. And his grandson was there speaking at the documentary. He's a professor out in Washington State. And it was just something so inspiring and spiritual. And I was just feeling such hope for people that there could be people like this existed. And on, you know, walking out, you know, with my feet above the ground afterwards, it happened to be Good Friday. And there was a procession coming out of Marsh Chapel at BU of these wonderful young people. Somebody was playing a guitar, and they were walking in a processional across the BU campus, and we just started following them. And they were singing about um, love and Christ, and, and it didn't matter that I didn't believe in everything they believed in, because we were all part of that same hope and joy. And it I just took me, it kept me going for weeks. Sorry that took so long, but it was just really inspiring. <laughs>
0: Thank you.
3: Um, Well, my experience may not have been as global, but it was incredibly meaningful to me. I was involved in a um, nonprofit organization that was going through a lot of difficulty, and, um, and as things have it, if you ever experience organizations, people rapidly take sides. There's a lot of side taking and there's a lot of finger pointing. And there were some things that happened that were in fact against the law. And um, there was an incredible amount of stress in the community in which this existed. And I don't know how this happened to me, but I was in, well, of course I jumped in. I mean, you guys who know me know that I would jump in. So I jumped in, willing to take a side, willing to fight and go after this. And suddenly I, something came over me that I said, this is not what's needed here. What's needed here is to approach this. And I wasn't at church here at the time. So I, I, spirituality and me were 100 miles away at the time. <laughs> but um, I said... We need, there's something, these are all good people. These are all good people. And something has gone wrong here. And what we needed was some love. And I began to use that word in my mind, even though I didn't use it out loud in these contentious meetings. But it it, it became that mystical kind of experience of like, once I looked at it that way, I could actually get through this and make different decisions and treat people better. And that community has all come back together again and solved our problems with the law and everybody else and the federal government and moved on. Um, And I don't know where that came from, but it was really a life-changing experience for me. Thank you, Susan.
4: Hey, um, I'm Ruth. I'm a psychotherapist and when I started training and I started my practice, I used to, a lot of time, get really overwhelmed by how badly off my clients were, how much pain they were in, how miserable they were. And I would just go home and have nightmares. And I can't talk about exactly what happened that changed that. Um, for lots of reasons, mainly that it would break confidentiality, sorry. Um, but. There came a point where I realized that my clients would be okay because I didn't have to have answers for them, I didn't have to rescue them, I didn't have to make them feel better because there is a force of free will, of people striving and growing and changing and trying to, as hard as they can to get through things. And there's a force of of love and people being loved and taken care of and trying to love each other. And I can trust those when my clients are having a really hard time. I don't have to fix it. My client doesn't have to know right this second how to fix it. But together we'll figure out, um, because those two forces are strong enough and powerful enough that they just get you through eventually.
3: Thank you.
5: We'll take one more, or two more. (laughs) Um, I'm an
6: energy healer, um, but I have a lot of stories I could tell, but um, I wanted to talk about um, Byron Katie, who's a woman who had an enlightenment experience in the 80s, and about this notion um, that we create our reality. And if we're resonating with love rather than fear, uh, reality is very different from what the majority of people experience. And she was held up at gunpoint um, by someone who was following some compulsion that he felt he couldn't control. And she was completely calm and didn't feel any different than she had before there was a gun being pointed at her. Um, And first she said, I wish you wouldn't do that. And, um, but she wasn't saying it for herself, she was saying it for him. Because she thought how horrible, if he were to kill somebody, then he would be destroying his soul. And he responded, I have to. And she thought to herself, oh yeah, I remember when I thought that I had to do things, when I believed everything I was thinking. And she just said to him, well, thank you for doing your best. And he walked away because she touched his heart.
3: Thank you,
0: that's one.
5: I'll be short. Um, So, um, I guess... Oh, sorry. Um, Hi. uh, So, I guess I have a story more about serendipity um, and kind of forces in the universe just bringing people together um, that at a point in both of their lives that they meaningfully touch each other that you wouldn't expect. Um, I... Um, I've kind of been in a place where I needed a bit of guidance and uh, I ran into someone, uh, my mom's friend from my past who, uh, you know, needed a place to stay because she had been very sick and couldn't work and um, so we both kind of provided this connection that um, we both needed and it was very serendipitous and moving to me, I mean, it's not perfect, but it, it worked <laughs> for us, and I felt that was, that, that made me want to believe in a plan that the universe kind of has, I don't know.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for all your sharing. We learned so much from each other. We seldom had the opportunity to share from the heart all these amazing things that happened to us, and that can serve to inspire others not to be afraid to be open to the spirit, to the workings of the universe in you.